0: The B Rock Fire Podcast.
1: Good morning. This is LJ Regime, and I'm Will Fuller. And welcome to the B Rocks Fire Podcast. We're really excited today to welcome our special guest, uh, the Broward Sheriff Gregory Tony. How are you today, sir? Good
2: morning, gentlemen. I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for uh, inviting me today. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Me too, me too. We're, um, we've been thinking about this for a little while. We just feel like, you know, there's so much unrest going on right now in the world. And I think it's important. We think it's important to have conversations and really just try to get a better understanding of what's going on and what we can do to oh help.
2: God, I'm glad you two are engaged in wanting to figure out ways to help uh, I think you're speaking indirectly about a lot of the issues we're dealing with in the community right now when it comes to police reform uh, and excessive force. And, and I tell you, I've been in this industry now, uh, at least in this office, for roughly 19 months and been tackling so many different issues related to police misconduct and use of force. So um, I'm hoping to expand on some of the things we're doing here and kind of you know, have some questions uh, present itself based on what we were doing and what we're going to continue to do in the future.
1: We love that. That's great. Um, at, you know, just before we kind of dive into that, we'd love to know just a little bit about you, your story, and how you got into law enforcement and what led you to the career that you have today.
2: Yeah, listen, Yeah, I, I grew up uh, up north in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, in the early 1990s, it's one of the most drug and violent written communities in America. You, you know, we had one of the worst homicide rates in the community, Uh, At 14 years of age, I had survived a home invasion, had to shoot and kill an armed suspect who was trying to kill me and my brother. Uh, I witnessed my friends being slaughtered on the streets at 16 years of age. A good friend of mine uh, was shot in the face over some minor, you know, disturbance. But it had become the norm in that community. And between the age of probably 12 through 16, just to paint how abnormal this was, I'd probably seen at least a half a dozen murderers or people killed directly in front of me. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to do was to get out of that community. Every single statistic that had shown this, this face at the time was either you were going, if you were a young black male, you were going to go to jail or you're going to end up dead in the morgue. And that didn't make sense to me. Uh, very early on, I, I figured that I can do more with myself. I elected to use my athleticism. I had always been a pretty good athlete, uh, was a good football f- player, good baseball player, wrestler. And said, this is going to be my tool to stay off the street. The longer I was engaged in sports, the less I was on the streets. And fortunately for me, um, I had won some different accommodations, uh, was to offer some scholarships to some schools up north. But I really wanted to challenge myself and take off. And Florida State University was a dynasty at the time. Bobby Bowden was coaching. they we were winning a national championship. or playing every single year. And I was like, man, I want to be that guy. I want to play in a national championship. I want to play for Florida State. And I started, it was, it was very bold. Uh, at the time, I turned down some local scholarships to the schools there. I was the first person in my family ever to go to college and, and offer the opportunity. So it was kind of risky. But I remember telling myself, if I'm going to risk anything, this is the time to do it. If I'm going to advance in life, I'm going to have to give up some things. And so I decided at the end of high school, I uh, start sweeping up in barbershops, saving up money. Paid uh, for my first flight. I had never been on a plane before. I sent the deposit down for my apartment in Tallahassee. Uh, Didn't even, I mean, literally looked at it on the map and boom, I was going to land here at this apartment. Uh, Had $500 in my pocket, jumped on a plane with a duffel bag and never looked back. Uh, Played at Florida State, uh, became a starter. um, Played a national championship, won the ACC championship. Uh, Then after 9-11, knew I wasn't going to be some first-round draft pick. Sports was not going to be the answer. Always wanted to be a cop, started my career here in Coral Springs. As a cop in Coral Springs, uh, pretty much ran the gauntlet really fast. Uh, My first year in the road, having really known the streets and been on the streets forever, it was easy for me to be that officer that would, you know, chase down guys, capture big drug cases. And before you knew it, I had a sergeant who offered me an opportunity to work in Bison narcotics. And I went undercover for a RICO case and got deputized with the FBI. I uh, had a successful uh, case management working there. We arrested a lot of dirty cops, which is kind of part of the discussion we're going to have. And before you knew it, I was on SWAT. I was the first African-American SWAT operator, Was the first African-American sergeant, the first African-American burglary detective, uh, and won many uh, acolytes, been we highly decorated, even being awarded the Meritorious Award, which is one of our highest honors at Coral Springs. Uh, Lo and behold, it, you know, I took an interest in active shooter. Active shooter had become kind of my obsession, really. I was like, this is continuing to happen in the country. It was occurring on a frequent basis. And so I went up to the federal law enforcement training center with the permission of our chief, brought back all the training protocols that Coral Springs uh, end up utilizing on February 14th at the Stoneman Douglas shooting. Now I had retired and went in the private sector managing and developed my own company. Uh, When this happened, unfortunately, um, I decided it was time for me to come back and and do what I can to help because of that tragedy uh, and was offered an opportunity by the governor during an interview. I was one of three candidates that was interviewed and uh, came out on top and was appointed the first African-American sheriff in 105 years. Wow.
1: That's amazing. You have an amazing story, amazing pedigree and just amazing transition uh, in your career. And it sounds like you've seen a lot and been through a lot of used a lot of your personal experiences on the job that you're in. And, you know, just, just diving right into this, Sheriff, you know, with George Floyd's death being the catalyst for everything that's been going on right now, I know you are both an African-American and a policeman, so, or sheriff, so you have a unique vantage point And so I wanted to understand what's your personal take on everything that's transpired in the past two months.
2: Yeah, listen, I I will tell you both. And I've spoke about this on several different media outlets. You know, I grew up again in an environment where I had literally been George Floyd. I remember coming back from practice and getting dumped on the ground with several of my friends and cops putting their knee on my neck and patting us down only to say, oh, it's not you. Get up and move on. But the damage had already been done. We had been, you know, racially profiled, profiled, we had been thrown on the ground. And so when I watched George Floyd's uh, murder, it, it really struck at home at, at how important this is. And, and I've said this time and time again, you know, long before I had these pretty stars on my collar around my neck, I had a knee on my neck. I'd been that guy. Uh, and so it was something that I knew had already existed, but to see it in such a grotesque manner eight minutes and 46 seconds to watch other law enforcement officers stand by and do nothing. It just reminded me of the importance of making sure this agency, where I have roughly 5,700 employees, um, 3,000 plus of them are first responders, to making sure this agency would be accountable and not allow that to happen here. And last year, uh, early on coming into the office, I don't know if you guys remember, but we had a lot of controversy here with police uh, misconduct. You know, from the beginning, when I came into the organization, I had to terminate the deputies who failed to go inside the Stoneman Douglas school, um, allowing so many people to be slaughtered and killed. That was very controversial. That type of discipline never happens. But then I had one of my deputies beat a young black man in handcuffs inside the jail. And I terminated that deputy. It was very controversial. Had to fight with the unions on it. Then I had another deputy who beat a man who was handcuffed to a medical bed while in the hospital terminated that deputy, and it became another uh, point of conflict between the union uh, and this agency, or myself, uh, quite frankly. And then, of course, you all probably remember that the Luca Roll case, a young man in Tamarack, young black kid, about 15 years of age, uh, was involved in disorderly conduct, and one of our deputies slammed him to the ground and later smashed his head into to the floor, into the ground. Terminated that deputy where the a recommendation at the time from the Professional Standards Committee, which I'll expand on in a moment, said he should be exonerated. The reason why I took these hard stances goes back to understanding about what the issues are in a community. The black and brown community traditionally has, um, for long standing time, have had issues with trusting law enforcement. And What I tell people all the time, and I'm an educator, I've been an adjunct college professor for years, is about educating the true history behind this uniform and the association with it when it comes to systemic racism and prejudice. This very uniform, which I'm honored to wear, we can't forget, was involved in the Civil Rights Movement unleashing dogs on Black and Brown people, unfairly. Even my fire services, where I have roughly 700 firefighters and and, and I'm command of, their, their, their fire hoses was deployed on crowds of Black, Brown, in our LGBTQ community during these times of civil rights. And so there's a longstanding distrust with law enforcement that genuinely exists when it comes to black and brown people in this community. And so if we as administrators are not cognizant about these issues, if we're not doing things to train our people, then we're gonna continue to have this problem occur in the community. Um, from a, an accountability standpoint, it was important not just to keep terminating people, If I keep terminating people, it's retroactive, right? That means the harm has already happened in the community. Someone's hurt, harm, killed, right, or injured. You can't have that. So we put forth some things that are important for this community. Early warning tracking systems, a use of force review board, a much more accountable professional standards committee. I hired a judge uh, to come in and chair it. That was unprecedented. Um, We never had that but I figure who more qualified than a judge to look at a set of circumstances and say, this is fair or unfair. So we're on track to do a lot of good things and I'll answer some more questions. I know um, you you had some things that you want to bring up.
1: Yeah. You know, I think what you're saying is, is you're really articulating the, the issues that we're having and you're talking about um, in the community, the the black and Brown communities, Um, you know, so the last couple of weeks you're getting you know from our perspective you get a lot of different media reports and you know whether you're left right whatever you are there's a bias a slant um so you got to try to cut through some of the noise and try to get to the facts so um one of the articles that will be linked in the podcast and i've shared with you is from the wall street journal um and it's the myth of systemic police racism by heather mcdonald and it quotes a a study um, that researchers found at the end that there is no significant evidence of anti-Black disparity and the likelihood of being fatally shot by the police. And it goes through all the numbers. And, you know, it's looking at it from a data perspective. And the question was, you know, are police specific, specifically targeting um, Black and Brown people to, to kill them? And I just kind of wanted to understand, you know, your response to that. Do you think, you know, as a policeman, that this is something that, is being specifically targeted. And I just wanted to, you know, are the researchers missing something here? And I just, cause we gotta try to find that middle ground yeah. where, you know, the rhetoric that gets everyone all upset and let's look at the facts at the same time.
2: Yeah, so with any research report, you have to keep in mind a couple of things with it. One, it's a snapshot in time. It's very restrictive into what it's expanding and examining. And for that particular report, one of the fundamental things it's not including is the culture that exists. Okay. The culture of mistrust, the culture of traditional over policing in black and brown communities, the culture that exists with uh, disproportionate arrests and encounters with black and brown people, the true disproportion of the amount of minorities that are in custody right now within the Department of Corrections or even in our jails, and then the disproportion of uh, Uh, sentencing guidelines and how they affect black and brown people. So when you tally all those things up and you inject law enforcement officers into the community where a system has been in place that almost uh, is targeting minorities more than any other population, there will be a nexus to the negative encounters, meaning the officers who get in that engagement and kill somebody of black and brown color. And how does that happen? I mean, there, there's a, a multitude of social issues that are directed, uh, directly related to this. Why is most policing done in the inner cities or in the lower income communities, right? Because you typically have a higher degree of, of criminal infractions occurring in those communities that are associated to poverty. What do I mean? Why do we have a higher burglary rate in predominantly black communities that are low uh, in terms of income. Because people are trying to figure out ways to provide food, to provide funding and money, uh, to buy all those disposable income things that wealthy people can do. And so there's an association there. Why are people selling drugs? Most of them don't have the education. Most of them don't have the resources to go to college. I just told you about my own personal story, right? I swept up in a barbershop to find my way at Florida State. And so, but, I, but the, alternate, the, the alternative could have been me becoming a drug dealer right. and selling drugs in the street, right, which would have had a greater risk factor. I knew this very early on, right? So I had preferred to sweep up in a barbershop, but that is not the case for so many other people in the community. And so when that study articulates that it's not a matter of policing, going out and identifying and targeting, I think that's accurate, but it's also misleading because what it doesn't account for is that we are over-policing the minority communities and therefore it is only a matter of time before these things occur.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you make some some great points there. And you know, it just gets me thinking, one of the things that Will and I talk a lot about on our podcast are men's issues. And it's really important to us to discover our identities as men. And I grew up, my parents uh, were divorced. And I know that in the black community, there's a lot of fatherlessness and fathers who are not in the home. And, you know, I wonder what your thoughts are on that contributing, especially when it comes to joining gangs, being part of that culture, the drug culture. Do you think that the lack of of, of strong parental figures contributes to this problem?
2: Yeah, that's part of it. It definitely is a nexus there where it's hard to find positive role models in, in, in parts of the black community out there. But it's again, it's not just stuck to single parent households, because I will tell you, uh, in an early part of my adolescence, both my parents were there. Mm. Uh, And then, you know, later in my early teens, there's a separation. But I can recall the difference in how the parenting took place in my household when both parents was there versus just one. And my mother had to carry so much more weight and wear dual hats and become both the father figure and the, 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 the financial uh, winner, the breadwinner for the family, uh, by working three or four jobs herself. But I didn't really have a strong male figure in my life until I got onto a much more competitive team environment. You know, my baseball coach, Coach Bobby Bowden, they, they took on this father approach that, uh, you know, strong manhood. Now, the interesting thing about that, those two figures happen to be caucasian they happen to be white right Right. so i had a disconnect from being around strong black men from roughly the age of 13 14 years of age all the way up into my late teenage years of 18 19 going into my 20s so being able to have positive role models um, of color in the communities of color is vital and you have to be able to set an example for people Uh, to see and aspire to become things, one of the greatest things that had occurred to me was exposure, seeing something different. I'll never forget this. The first time I actually seen grass was when my baseball coach took me out to the suburbs for a camp. The schools and fields in Philadelphia were all dirt, but that level of exposure, to this day, I can still tell you what the first time the first time I smelled freshly cut manicured grass on the baseball field think about the psychology behind that it 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 showed me that there was more to be acquired
1: absolutely and I think that you doing what you're doing and your career and your trajectory um does inspires us, I know for sure, and i and I hope hopeful that it inspires others, and I think you being in the in the position that you're in brings a lot of hope for people because I do think we all want to be in this together and solve this issue, all all these issues together. Um, do you feel that right now with politics being so divisive in an election year? Um, and groups like Black Lives Matters and all the protests. Now, I know that Broward, um, thankfully, hasn't seen the kind of um, protests and rioting that a lot of other cities have seen across the country. And I know that a lot of that is attributed, I feel, to the work that you guys are doing. But I wanted to understand first for you, what is your thought, your stance on Black Lives Matter as a political movement, not the statement, but as a political movement, and What do you feel like in Fort Lauderdale um, and Broward at large, the um, sheriff's department is doing to manage this tight, uh, tense situation?
2: Yeah, uh, look, first of all, it it should go without saying, but absolutely Black Lives Matter. Uh, I'd like to thank mine does. I'd like to thank that uh, I would want to be treated fairly and have the same opportunities that are presented to anyone of different color and skins here. Uh, I think what's happened with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, traditionally, it has turned into people uh, taking this perception that we are saying that nothing else matters, that uh, white lives doesn't matter, that police lives doesn't matter. That has not been the driving focus behind this particular movement. It is just a matter of recognizing that there, there still exists discriminatory practices and prejudices, in um, social inequalities for black people that is being uh, connected to law enforcement encounters and people are losing their lives over. I was pleasantly um, surprised at the response that we've seen on a national level and on an international level with the murder of George Floyd. We had roughly 50 states participate in some shape, form or fashion in Black Lives Matter movement. We had 18 countries. We didn't see this type of response in the civil rights movement. I remember looking on TV and I believe it was in Amsterdam, and there was probably about 2,000 people holding signs up saying Black Lives Matter, and they were all white. I didn't see one black person in the crowd. That's the response that this movement has been trying to drive, to open up and educate the entire population of what the messaging is and how important it is for equality, not only in this country, but on this planet. From a a Broward County perspective, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, to your point, when he came out here, we rallied with him. I took a knee with him. We provided security and escort for them to make sure things was done correctly. We had a few agitators in Fort Lauderdale um, who really are just opportunists and trying to create havoc. But, you know, Fort Lauderdale uh, was out there and we helped them to gain control of it. But think about it. There, there's almost two million people here spread across 1,300 miles. And yet we as a community are responding effectively. And it's because this agency, with my command staff, we have focused on not being considered an outsider during these protests. At the end of the day, when one bad cop steps out of line, there is a global effect now where it impacts every law enforcement organization in this country. And so when we see bad things happening, we can't sit idle, uh, idly by We can't be passive, we can't be quiet. We most certainly can't be politically correct. Over the last 18, 19 months, I have said and and made a lot of decisions that is not popular for a sheriff to do. But if not me, then who? And it's astonishing what happens when one person in a position of power steps out and speak and act. It's one thing to say something; it's another to do something. It creates a ripple effect. I had a meeting with the Broward chiefs of police, and all the chiefs across this county had sat in, and I talked about the importance of uh, introducing racial equity and implicit bias training for my men and women, for my law enforcement officers, so that they understand the true cultural differences and, and plights that black and brown people are facing. And when I brought it up, the other chief said, Sheriff, we want in. That's a great idea. And so I went from a half a million dollars to dedicating a million dollars. And this is going to be the first time in the state of Florida where an entire county's law enforcement body goes through racial equity and implicit bias training. That's that amazing. allows for this community to open our eyes and say, Hey, we're trying. We're not perfect, but we're damn sure trying.
1: I think that's amazing. And I think you're the, you know, the path that we're on, especially down here in Fort Lauderdale, you know, what was frustrating for, for me was seeing you know different people with different political motivations, Antifa, these people who are really just trying to take this situation and manipulate it to their political agenda, because it takes the power and the message away from what's really trying to be said. And I, I agree with you. I think that for the most part here in Fort Lauderdale or in Broward, we've had peaceful protests. We haven't had a lot of drama or rioting that's gotten out of control, and I think the fact that you guys have worked together with the people who are managing the protests just speaks volumes to how it can be done, a model for, for other cities to, to work from.
2: And you know what else is very important about what we are doing from the law enforcement side is inclusion of the public, not trying to do this all by ourselves to give the public opportunity. We've created so many different committees since I've been in command of this agency, uh, just to get more insight on how we can modify and better serve the community and better police. Uh, We did an LGBTQ commitment for the first time. Uh, After the Floyd incident, we've established a social justice task force where we're bringing in different civic leaders uh, and community activists to figure out, hey, here's what we've done internally, here's how we've invested monies, but what else do you think we can do? How can we partner up together to tackle this problem, because there's, there's still a training aspect. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, oh, I think sorry. even us sitting down and, and here talking with you today, two Italian dudes, you know, speaking with you, like we just need to continue to reach out to each other and and talk.
0: Yeah, and um, this is a perfect segue in kind of what you just said. Uh, you know, what can we do as members of our city? You know, to help heal. You know, all these things that are going on in society, and you know, how can we work together with the sheriff's department to to affect this positive change? Because I know that's important. Um, it's not just, like you said, it's not just, the it's, 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 we all have to get involved. And in, what do you, what would you recommend?
2: I think one of the key things is really educating yourselves up on all the different social issues that exist in the, the discriminatory and prejudices and systematic and institutional racism that is real, that, that is not fabricated, that is not, um, you know, uh, a punchline or a campaign slogan for anyone, but but it's real. What's happened in our educational institutes, so much to have been streamlined and cut out about the negatives of our country and the history behind it, where it has negatively impacted us as a people to grow. You don't hide the wrongdoings. You don't hide the negative history that we have here because if you do, you're more than likely to repeat those same failures. And I'll give you a prime example. I was talking to one of my deputies, young, probably about 25, 26 years of age, uh, been with the agency for a couple years, and was expanding on the history behind racism here in this country, from slavery to Jim Crow to segregation to the civil rights movement. And something happened that really opened my eyes. She didn't know what Jim Crow was. 20 plus years of age from South Florida, never heard of Jim Crow. These dialogues and conversations and education is important, and it's important not for just Black people to know about it, but it's important for our white brothers and sisters to know about it so that when there's a real conversation about racism and institutional prejudice and discriminatory practices that are occurring, you can be an ambassador to speak the truth. And it doesn't come off as as just another black person complaining about issues. No, these are realities. Engagement, get involved in all our civil, civic groups and and, uh, committees that we're doing because you will have a voice. We don't hear all the things that you hear in the community. That's what's the, the importance behind community policing and tying that relationship together. People don't talk to the police the same way they talk to you if you were at Starbucks. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And
1: do, do you feel like though, if you know this young deputy not knowing about Jim Crow laws, it feels like it's gone so far now that we're talking about canceling George Washington and like, you know, where where can we meet in the middle and be like, yes, we have we have an amazing country that we're all proud to be of. We do have a history of bad things that have happened, mistreatment, slavery, all of that. But let's not throw out all the good stuff. You know, like, where do we meet in the middle on that?
2: Well, I think that's the the balancing point. You know, I agree with that. I don't think we need to jettison every single uh, historic landmark or uh, individuals who have contributed to this country in a positive manner. No one's perfect. Uh, And you have to recall the times in which so many things that were occurring. But there are some victories we can have. Um, right. You know, removing the Confederate flag. I think we can all agree on that. Um, you know, certain statues and things of that nature that are, are really, um, you know, fabricating or, or giving someone's credit for their wrongdoings. Uh, there's a balance behind it. Um, I think right now, because it's such a sensitive time that everyone's trying to figure out what can we do to show our support? What can we do to further get rid of the. Uh, you know, the institutional issues of racism. Uh, but and I think it's, it not, always a, it's, like a, it's not always a matter of removing a physical product right. or a materialistic item. The most deadliest thing is not the statue that's sitting on some lawn. It's an ideology. Right. You have to penetrate the ideology behind racism. Mm. I heard this uh, quoted a long time ago when, when we were going on the war against terror uh, after 9-11. Uh, there was much discussion about how do we beat and how do we, uh, you know, win over Al-Qaeda? And was it a matter of dropping a multitude of bombs? Was it a matter of where we're we going to be the strongest military force to do it? That goes ha- without saying, yes, we have that. But one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And so if you are going to beat a terrorist or you going to beat racism, you have to change someone's ideology. To change an ideology, you have to educate them on the truth, and then you give them an opportunity. After having the truth, to make a conscious decision: will you live in a world of lies, or are you going to accept the truth and modify your behavior?
0: And I agree. That's, I mean, I feel like that's a, a one way to end it, but you know, because that's a great way to um, to try to finish off. But I do want to end it on this. If if you had one message to the world right now, to the world, um, what would it be?
2: God, you know, that's that's pretty deep, you know. There's a lot of people on this planet uh, and, to, and to merge one singular message.
1: Well, how about this, how about if the, you
2: had, if you had one message to the people of Broward County <laughs> who, you know, will be will be voting for you in the fall, what, uh, what would you say? I would say to the voters here that this is the first time in this county's history that we have an opportunity to bridge the differences within our cultures, within our business districts, within our financial communities, the rich versus the poor. I have taken on an ambassador role here, not just the sheriff, not just the chief law enforcement officer, but because the level of power that exists in this position and the influence, I can walk into some billionaire's mansion in a home or I can go into a community where someone's living in 500 square feet, and I've lived both sides of that world, and I understand the issues. We haven't had that here in a long time, and I have been bridging these gaps and bonding this community, and doing the reform efforts to make sure we don't have conflict here. Being accountable, stepping out and doing the things that uh, people expect. You know, so many things I've changed over the last year: policies, protocols, procedures cultures, expectations. But for all the things we put in place, there isn't a policy for decency. You either have it or you don't. And I learned that a long time ago. And so the goal here now for this community is to do we go back to a broken past or do we guess and hope for broken promises that people give on a campaign speech? Or do we look at what's going on right here, right now, and say that works for this county and it most certainly works for this state and it can be a model for this country.
1: Wow. Perfect. Wow. Thanks. That was, I thank, appreciate that. Thank you so much. I, I think decency and reaching out and working together and we're so thankful, um, Sheriff, for you talking to us today. Thank you so much for taking right, the time.
2: Thanks for having me on, guys. All right, thank, thank you. you. I really appreciate it. Wow. That was awesome. That was great. I re- what a great interview.
0: I really appreciate the fact that he took his time you're very busy, especially during times like this mm-hmm. um, i I feel like you know when you're running a campaign and you've got all these things going on, but just think of all the the stuff that's happening outside right now with that are that are needed and the voice that's needed and He took thirty minutes of his time just to have a conversation with us. I thought that was awesome
1: yeah, I mean, and I think that's the point that really resonated with me was him talking about reaching out being an ambassador and finding that common ground and I think that you know, his message and what he's trying to do for Broward, it it definitely resonated with me.
0: Yeah, and the one thing I was hoping for, and you never know when you're doing an interview, is that you hope that the person, you know, even though they're in the as a sheriff, you hope that they step outside of what they do, you know? And I believe that he did that. And I, for me personally, I feel-
1: I feel like you didn't feel like he was like- he didn't have an agenda. To, like, yeah, like he wasn't trying to like play politics. He, he was just trying. trying to speak from his heart and his yeah. experience. And
0: he was saying things that, you know, um, there might be some sheriffs out there, police officers out there that might be like, whoa, but at the same time, he's got to be real. Mm. And, and I understand that uh, for us, you know, two guys, you know, a podcast, you know, he could have easily just been like, you know, no, nah, I don't have time for you guys. He
1: literally took time uh, and I asked him some, you know, I, you know, I don't think they were for tough me. questions, but they were, you know, you got to get to the heart of, yeah. of everything. And I think for me, bringing up the point, um, about fatherlessness in the community and his experience of how, like, he didn't have those strong role models, you know, after his parents got divorced until, you know, he was in his sports career and in school. And, you know, it, it's, it's, that, that's inspiring stuff, yeah. you know? Um, so Will, you know, this this was, I would say, our our last sort of rocks B Rocks fire podcast in our first iteration, would yeah. you say?
0: Yeah, we we we've been involving. Just like uh, you know, everyone keeps talking about the new normal. Well, new normal's mm-hmm. coming for us too when it comes to um the B rocks fire piles. We're not going anywhere. Nope. I know, I know some people are like, <gasps> oh, no, but we're not going anywhere. Or they're but,
1: like, Oh god, they're, they're sticking like, around.
0: They're like, they got <laughs> the like, what? No, they're about <laughs> to
1: celebrate. But we're gonna we're going to morph a little bit. Yeah. We're going to morph and we're going to get a little bit more focused and talk about things that, you know, after listening and taking your feedback on what you guys want to hear about, we are going to start talking about that stuff and um, you know, how you got those. And honestly, (laughs) and let's put it this
0: way. The the message is is that, you know, we, we both love health and fitness. Yeah. And um, so that's kind of where, that's what
1: brought us together. Really? Yeah. Literally.
0: Yeah. Um, and we feel like there's a lot of questions out there. I've been on this like now 60 day body transformation. You also totally. have been going through this like muscular and we're completely different in what we're doing. But at the same time, we get lots of questions. We have lo- I feel like we have lots of real answers and mm-hmm. we're going to do that with the podcast. Um, if you know my style sense and all that stuff, if, if you state, if you were on for those, I still have my SoFlo flow style guide that's morphing into a more, Hey, I'm going to tell you how to dress. Mm. Um, the modern Thor is coming up still going to be part of this, but also going to have a lot of things going on with that. I, I'm excited. This change yeah. is really going to, if you're into fitness, nutrition and wanting to better yourself, better your life. Um, I feel like this is going to be a good step for us. I, I agree.
1: agree. And, you know, just like our conversation today, you know, we're two bros talking to the sheriff. It's going to come from our bro perspective Definitely. and still be us. So right. thank you guys so much for wa- watching. We'd love to know any feedback you have about this interview with Sheriff Gregory Tony. And again, thanks to him for allowing us to
0: interview. him today. Awesome. Thank you. Peace. Deuces.
1: <laughs> Deuces. <laughs> Deuces. <laughs> I don't know. I got nothing.